please take your seats and pick up your Bibles. We're going to be looking actually this morning at the first three verses that were read to us. I'll explain more in just a second. Uh, But before I do so, let me commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the tremendous privilege it is to gather together, to open your word and to hear you speak to your people. Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, you have said that your word does not return to you empty. And so we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you will powerfully apply your word to the hearts of your people, to the hearts of all here. Challenge us, Lord. Provoke us and instruct us, correct us, train us, we pray. Do all this by the power of your spirit we ask this morning, through your holy word, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, do you consider yourself to be a joyful person? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, well, perhaps a better question, actually, is do you think that others would describe you as joyful? Yeah, those who live with you, those who work with you, you know, would, would joyful be anywhere in their mind if they were trying to describe you to somebody, to somebody else? Joyful. It's an interesting thing to comp- contemplate, isn't it? To, re- to think about. What would it be about you, though, that would actually make someone describe you using a word like that? Joyful. He's a joyful person. He's got some joy in him. You know, actually, what do we hear when I say the word joy? What, what, what sorts of things come into your mind? Joy joyfulness, rejoicing. I mean, is the idea you've got of joy or or rejoicing a person like that, a person who's always joking around? Yeah, never really taking anything seriously. Well, that doesn't seem right, does it? That can't be what the Bible's talking about. Or someone who's always, always just smiling and singing, never sad about anything one day of their life, making light of things. Now, I mean, that's not quite right either, is it? It's not quite joy. You know, it was just over a a year ago that we were going through a series uh, in the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5 as we're doing that series. And those of you who were with us then might remember that with each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, we took time to try and get to grips with it. What does it really mean, these nine different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? One of those aspects there of that fruit was joy. Uh, And and if you want more information on what joy is, please look that up. It would be, I'm sure, very edifying to us to be reminded about these things. Now, I mention this because just like all the other fruit of the Spirit when we're doing that series, joy is a word that we don't always define correctly. We don't always get it right in our minds, in our heads. And so we're going to look at that a bit this morning and make sure that we're clear on what it is we're being told to do here. Because joy is a massive theme in this letter written to the Philippians. I mean, look at that slide up on the screen. Dan made that slide for me before I told him really what the theme was about. Uh, He's obviously scratched around like I did and, and looked at what others have said about the book of Philippians and said, oh, it's all about joy. In fact, when I decided to preach through this letter... I kept running into this. You know, people would say, oh, you're preaching Philippians, the, ep- the epistle of joy, they would say. And I'd say, oh, 
that's good. Yeah, it's always mentioning this theme of joy. And I feel slightly bad, actually, this morning that we've not really addressed the topic of joy properly. We've not even defined it until now. And in fact, we've left it until the point where we're actually in the, the, the one chapter in Philippians where joy rejoicing is only mentioned once. Every other chapter is just full of being told to, to have joy and to rejoice and to be glad. I reckon, actually, I was looking at it this week, that the words for joy or rejoicing or being glad are used 17 times in this letter. At least that many. There may, may be more, actually. It really is a central focus. And see, the thing is that what makes the whole topic of joy a sticky one for us is what we have there in verse 1, look. Here in chapter 3, and it's not the only place in the New Testament where you get this. In fact, it's not even the only place in this letter where we are commanded to rejoice. We're told we must do it. Yeah? And so that's really going to be my first point this morning. Joy commanded. Joy is commanded of us. Finally, my brothers, says Paul in verse 1 here, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Or chapter 4, verse 4, it's even more emphatic if you want to flick the page over. Look at this one. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So joy is not an optional addition. You know, for, for Christians who are of the more sunny disposition, that's not me, uh, but those who are of a more sunny disposition, well, they can opt to have a bit of, you know, do the joy thing, yeah? No, it's something that we must do. What we have here is an instruction to obey. We've got to get this right in our lives. That's what Paul's saying. And what's more, you want to, I'm going to pile on on you, on you and on myself, we're also commanded not to be grumpy in this letter. Philippians 2.14, did you miss it, perhaps, when we were going through it? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, it's like a blow to the stomach, isn't it? I love grumbling, <laughs> and I'm not allowed to, I'm in trouble here. Yeah, sometimes the word of God can give us a real pummeling, and, I, I, and that's what I pray that, that the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit will do for us this morning. Because all this being said, if rejoicing is something that we are commanded to do, then we've got to, get, we've got to get a really clear idea of what it is. We've got to define it nice and clearly. Now, the first thing to say is that joy must be something that, to an extent, is detached from, a, from how we're feeling. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Why is that? Because you cannot tell someone that they must feel a certain way, can you? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, you can't command, you know, imagine this if you're, if you're trying to do, can you command someone to love you, you know, to, to feel affection towards you? You know, this is something you really can't do. So we need then to understand that there's a fundamental difference between happiness and joy. Happiness and joy. Now, these two things can often look the same when they're expressed, can't they? Happiness, a happy person, a joyful person, they might well look identical. But they are established 
on fundamentally different foundations, those two things. Happiness, actually, is a, is a word that came into our language about 600 years ago, and it came in, in a root form of hap, H-A-P-P, -P, hap. And hap's actually a word for chance, hap. And we still use it like that, actually. You know, people can have a bit of a mishap. A mishap is, is something that just sort of happens to you, isn't it? And therefore, happy originally meant, it came into our language meaning favoured by fortune, really was the idea. Favoured by fortune. Stuff's just happened well for you. Joy is different. Joy is different. It comes from knowing that we're not in the hands of fortune, actually, but rather that we're in the hands of God. That's where joy comes from. You see fundamentally different background? Happiness is just a feeling. It's determined by our current circumstances, the haps around us. And, and it's momentary. And again, it's only really ever as stable or as reliable as our feelings which go up and go down. I find a, a picture helpful here. I just wanted to really try, try and get this. Have you ever watched kids playing with soap bubbles? You know, you, get, you can get these machines now, can't you? Do all the blowing for you. It's fantastic. You, know, you blow a lot of bubbles, and the bubbles are all filling the air. What do the kids want to do? What's, the, what's their first instinct? They want to catch them, don't they? They want to catch that beautiful, shiny little thing, and they want to have it for themselves. So they chase after the bubbles, and they try to land one in their, their grubby little hands. And the instant they try to hold one, what happens? Pop. It goes. A soap bubble is, by its very nature, temporary and passing. It's a fleeting thing. And just like happiness, anchored as it is on the things of this present world, your situations, yeah, it, 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 they're, they're as reliable as, as, a, as a soap bubble. Joy and happiness, you see, both present with this, and I think it's quite a helpful way of thinking about it, they both, pre both present as a kind of a buoyancy in life, don't they? Yeah, something that makes you a bit floaty, yeah? They, 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 they lift you up, they lift the spirit, they lift the soul of a person. But whereas happiness is fragile like that soap bubble that pops, joy is more like a life jacket strapped on. That's what joy is. It's a life jacket for the soul. How about that for a definition of joy? Because real Christian joy will keep God's people buoyant even in the worst storms of life. Yeah, You might be in those rough waters and you might thrash about a bit and the waves might slap you in the face, but joy, joy will keep your head above the water. Joy will prevent you from going down. And that's why Paul can write this command and look at the context of it to Christians who are undergoing persecution and a form of persecution that we, we don't really experience. They're really under pressure. It's why he himself, if you've been with us for the series of this letter, you'll know, can tell them all about his own joy, can repeat joy, joy, joy all the way through this letter, despite the fact that he's writing this letter in chains, awaiting a trial that will determine life or death for him. So how do we do it? How do we get this joy? 
Well, it's in verse 1. It's in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's in the detail there, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord. In contrast to anything else that you might want to try and rejoice in. No, this is real joy. Rejoice in the Lord. If you try to find joy anywhere else, in anything else, in the whole of creation, it is liable to pop like a soap bubble. But if we find our joy in the Lord, nothing can touch it. It is utterly dependable. So listen now, this is important. Joy, real joy, can only be found in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where real joy is found. Now, it's a bit of a digression, but I just want to really rub this in. Let's over-egg the pudding somewhat. But let's have a look at what Peter says in his first letter. Tiny digression here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It's, it'll be up on the screen for you. Now, Peter's reading, Peter is writing, again, remember, to a persecuted church, a church that had been pushed out of their homes and dispersed. They're, they're undergoing difficult times. And he says this, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Not just some, but all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, there's tons in there. It's so wonderful. He's writing to people who have been going through all kinds of trials. And he's telling them to greatly rejoice. Not just rejoice, but greatly rejoice as they go through them. Why? Well, first, because all of the trials we go through serve a purpose. That's so important. To see all your trials as serving a purpose. We're not simply subject to random haps, happenstances. And every trial, every grief, is an opportunity to prove that our faith is genuine. That our faith is genuine. How will you react when bad things come your way? Will you turn away from God in doubt? We were thinking about that last week, weren't we? Or will you cling to him by faith? Which will you do? You're going to do one or the other. And when you make that choice, to cling to him by faith, your faith in him is refined. It's like gold going through the furnace. And Jesus is glorified. He's glorified. That's what Peter's saying here. And what Peter says at the end, in that, those last couple of verses there, is very important. It is this refined and this genuine faith that allows us, even though we've never actually even seen Jesus, to love him, to love him, to treasure him, for him to become precious to us. Faith 
is the expression of our relationship with him. It's how we express our relationship with Jesus, isn't it? How else can we? We express it by faith because he's not actually here with us. And when we relate to him by faith, Peter says, that's when we will find an inexpressible joy and we will receive a foretaste of our salvation. And so here's the interesting thing. It seems to me then that joy is something that is actually generated as a byproduct of our trials. It's not the only source of joy, but isn't that interesting? As you go through trials, this byproduct comes out. If you, if, you, if you face them by faith, a byproduct is produced. Joy. Joy starts to bubble out. It comes from knowing Christ, clinging to him, treasuring him. C.S. Lewis thought and wrote extensively on the subject of joy. It was a, it was a theme of a number of his, of his works. Here's how he put it, a little quote up on the screen for you. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he, choose, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. Do you see what Lewis is saying here? into him go to the source of joy if you want to know real joy you must rejoice in the lord that's the command but in the verses that follow paul tells us what that joy is actually specifically established upon so let's look at that next joy established let me read to you from verse verses two and three watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3, I put it to you, establishes the engine room of our joy. It's right there. What is the source of our joy? Yes, it's our relationship with the Lord Jesus. But our relationship with him is established in the gospel, the Christian good news. And that's what we have right here in, in verse 3. First, it is we who are the circumcision. Now, that's a, that is a weird statement, admittedly, uh, especially in the 21st century. That, you know, that's not the way that you speak to your mates down the pub. Mate, I'm the circumcision. You, you wouldn't do that. But circumcision is definitely a loaded topic, isn't it, in the Bible. Circumcision for Jewish people was an outward symbol which declared that they were set apart from the sinful world that was around them, and they were set apart to serve the living God. That's what circumcision meant to them. But it was always only a picture. It was always only a picture a picture of what actually needed to take place in the heart. In a similar way that, that we think about baptism today, actually, isn't it? A similar way we think about it. We, don't, we would never preach that baptism saves somebody. No, it's an outward picture of something that's got to happen in the heart. And so every male in Old Testament Israel, if you read through the Old Testament part of the Bible, 
Well, they might well have been circumcised. You'd sort of assume that they were. It was something you did when you're like eight days old or something. But it's clear, isn't it, as you read through the Old Testament, that there was only ever really a very small, faithful minority in Israel that, whose hearts actually belonged to God. Yeah, They'd had an outward sign done, yeah, but their hearts didn't belong to God. Paul puts it very bluntly in Romans chapter 2. Let me just pop these. I think we've got them up on the screen here. Romans chapter 2. Paul writes this really clear explanation, I think, here. Paul says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is from men, is, is, is not uh, from men, but from God. This is why Paul fought so many battles, and we've seen them as we've been going through Acts, haven't we? To establish that physical circumcision was not necessary for Gentile converts. And actual fact, if you remember back to Galatians, when we were doing that series, look it up online, might actually do more spiritual harm than good, actually, to go down that road. God does not judge us on the basis of what we look like on the outside. That's really what this is about, isn't it? The good things we do, or try to do, those things have no bearing on our salvation. God judges on the basis of our hearts, of what's going on in here. And it has always been that way. It's always been that way. That's not something new. And that means at least two really important things. Please tune in. Two important things. If you are buying into the idea that you can improve your standing with God by doing things, by you know, being kind, going to church, giving to charities, getting yourself baptised, then you are not just mistaken but on very, a very, very dangerous road. One that actually leads to hell. It's a road to hell. That's the first really important thing here. Secondly, it is then absolutely crucial, it is absolutely imperative that you deal with your heart instead. Not the outward things. You've got to deal with your heart. You need to go to Jesus. You need him to... To, uh, you need to ask him to make you clean on the inside because it is only the power of God that can actually circumcise a heart. And that is what we need. We are the circumcision, says Paul. You can write it confidently to the Philippians because they've put their trust in Jesus. We're the circumcision, says Paul. And he's... And, and there's the lovely thing about this in a letter is he's writing to a largely Gentile church, the first church planted uh, in the book of Acts, actually in Europe. And he's saying to these European Gentiles, we're the, we're the circumcision, it's us. It doesn't matter who you are, actually, Jew or non-Jew, what matters is that you've come to Jesus to get your heart 
sorted out, your heart made new. He follows it up by another thing here. He says, look, not just as we who are the circumcision, but it is we who worship by the Spirit of God. It's the second thing he says here in verse 3. And, and again, he's contrasting this. He's contrasting the Christian community in Philippi with the Judaizers, people raised and steeped in the Jewish religion, who are trying to insist on adopting Jewish religious practices. The word worship here, and, and the worship, word worship often in the New Testament, really it just simply means to serve God. That's what worship is. It is rendering service to God. And, and therefore worship is not just a Sunday thing, is it? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's an all-week, all-life thing, isn't it, to render service to God. It's not just singing songs. It's quite something, then, to say to these or, or, or that these Jewish, these zealous Judaizers steeped in the law of Moses, who, let's be honest, could absolutely smash these Gentiles on, you know, Old Testament trivia quiz night. Yet they really know their, they know their Bibles. To actually say that, that, that it's these it's these Gentile converts who are the ones who are actually able to render, to render service to God, to worship him. Whereas these Jew of Jews, they can't render service to God. They can't even serve God. They can't do stuff of value to God. And they're being contrasted with Gentiles who've been converted only five minutes. But the difference, says Paul, is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there can be no true worship of God. Jesus himself said this, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. You must worship what you know and you must worship in spirit. Genuine worship must come from a converted heart, a heart that has been circumcised, baptised, in the Holy Spirit, not just in water, not just with outward signs, because worship must be empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. And so it cannot come from external rituals. It can't come from external rituals. Worship is not about external stuff. That's really important, isn't it? See, this is the danger with religious practice, and so many people are in the grips of this. Religious practice can deceive people into thinking that they're serving God despite the fact that their heart, their hearts are far from him. They can be completely detached. It gives people, see, religious, religious religion gives people a set of tick boxes, doesn't it? To make them think that they've done some things that please God. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been to these uh, buildings that are just steeped in religion. You know, we, we did a holiday in Rome at the end of last year. And you go into some of these buildings, they're incredibly ornate. And, and everybody seems to know what they're doing. They've got their little things. They know they've come there and they've got to get a candle lit and they've got to kneel down and say a few words. And there's all of these forms that have been created here. Tick boxes. 
to make me feel like I did the thing that God is happy with, that God likes. Like God is some kind, well, that makes, it makes God some kind of taskmaster, doesn't it? That God's not actually interested in people as long as he gets his stuff done. There need to be enough candles there lit uh, in, in the cathedral. Jesus warned the Pharisees by quoting what God said about Israel through the prophet Elijah. Now, okay, so this is the prophet speaking to God's people, people who uh, ostensibly are supposed to be worshipping the right God. Yeah? This, is, this is God's established religion in the Old Testament. But look at what's happened. Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men, all just created man-made stuff. Tick boxes. But we, we are the circumcision, says Paul. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God. We are those who've had our hearts changed. We are those he says, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's going to become really crucial next week. No confidence in the flesh. Uh, but, but just, just a, a second to think about that. A final contrast that Paul draws here in verse 3. It concerns what we do boast about, wh where we put our boast. The Judaizer, okay, this religious Jewish person, they want to boast about all the religious boxes that they have ticked. Uh, that's the only source, actually, he has to turn to for a sense of, a, of assurance that God is pleased with him. What have, I, what have I done for God? And it's really flimsy. It's really flimsy. If that's what you're basing, how you think God thinks about you, is based on the things that you've done or haven't done, that's as fragile as a soap bubble, isn't it? going to pop because God doesn't care about those outward things if, if the heart is not right but the Christian boasts in something else the Christian boasts in Christ Jesus you know I, I, I always pose this question uh, during the Christianity Explore course that we run I say something along the lines of look and we, we, you know, most people can picture this, you know, the pearly gates. So let's, let's imagine that you're at the gates of heaven. And, and let's just imagine that you were asked why you should be let in and not turned away. What would you say? Yeah, it's a good question. And the point that I want to make when I'm asking that question is that any answer that starts with I is not going to cut it. It's just not going to work. The only answer, that is the only place to put your confidence, is in the fact that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. It's our confidence is to be in him. He's our boast. Nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with what we've done. What a joy then to be able to boast in Christ and not to have your confidence resting on what you've done. To know that you are his and he is yours. What a joy to know that the death he died on the cross, he died for you. What a source of joy. 
But as we come to a close this morning, there's a cloud hanging overhead as we read through these verses because those Judaizers, these false teachers, have wiggled their way in with teaching that sounds really reasonable and good. And of course, they're Bible scholars. You know, they won at the trivia quiz. So, you know, they really know what they're talking about. And if you follow them, here's where we're going next week. They're going to rob you of all of your joy. They're going to take it from you. So my third point, just briefly, is joy threatened. Look at these clouds looming. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. It's provocative language, isn't it? I've left this point till last because I'm going to pick up on it next week, as I say. But verse 2 is actually full of warnings here. And the NIV sort of slightly loses the impact to try and make it read nicer for us. But actually, if you, if you go to a version like the, the ESV, you'll get something like this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You'll get this warning, warning, warning three times. Strong warnings. All about the same thing. Those who are threatening to take away the joy of the Philippian Christians. And something that will try to take away your joy too. Just look at them, how they're described. They're dogs. It's dogs that will take away your joy. <laughs> now, if you're a dog person, sorry. <laughs> but you've got to understand, these are not the lovable pets that you like to cuddle at home, okay? That's not the dogs we're talking about here. These are rabid dogs. You need to think Cujo here, okay? You know the, the, the book Cujo? The horrible dog, I'm a rabid dog. These are the dogs of the street, they're the ones that hunt in packs and carry disease. And they want to sink their teeth into you and spread that disease wherever they go. You get the image? These are the dogs that you would never let loose in a field of sheep. Okay? I mean, you'd be a pretty irresponsible owner to even take them there. They need to stay on a leash where there's sheep around. And that is Paul's concern, actually, isn't it? When you see one, you've got to have the warning lights have got to come on. And, and he might be disguised as a sheep. That's the problem. So you need to sound the warning. They are those who try to teach. We'll look a bit more next week. But they are those who try to teach and to enforce things that are simply not in God's word. The teachings of men. They're those who try to insist on extra conditions and additions to your salvation. Beyond simply trusting Jesus, you need to beware them. It's a very unflattering picture. They're dogs. They're also evildoers, look. I mean, that's pretty strong, considering that these are those people whose life's work is to, you know, the propagation of the Jewish religion. They're religious people. They're clerged. They look, you know, they're wearing, wearing their dog collars. Please don't be offended by that. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, and it's now recorded. So. No, I really don't mean that. I worked for an Anglican church for four years. I'm now backpedaling quickly. Okay? But what I mean is they're in the religious garb. That's the point. They're recognised as religious people, and yet they're evildoers here. And therein is the problem, you see. It's bad enough that they have a false gospel, but these men are active in pushing it on others. That's what they're doing. They're evildoers. You need to beware them. 
Finally, they are flesh mutilators. That's what they are. And considering the context, it's, it's, it's clearly a reference to circumcision. They're trying to foist circumcision onto people. And it is just worth saying, again, there's nothing wrong with circumcision per se. You know, we're going through Acts. We've seen that Paul has actually taken Timothy, and for the sake of the gospel and for the people he wants to reach, he's had him circumcised. Paul is not anti-circumcision per se. What matters is why you do it. What are you thinking? What's your motivation behind it? Why you do it is what will turn it from circumcision, an outward thing, to mutilation. Yeah, something that is doing harm. Now the issue in the words of verse 3, just look at verse 3, is where are you putting your confidence? Where's your confidence? Is your confidence in Christ or is your confidence in the flesh? We're going to spend a lot of time on that next week. But I want to challenge us this morning really to fight for joy. Fight for joy. If you have never ever known the kind of joy that I've been talking about this morning, joy that circumstances can't pop, then you need to come to Christ today. I would love to talk to you about that so that you can know that joy too and have your joy based on something that's solid, something that lasts. If you do belong to Christ, then I want you and I want myself too to remember that joy is commanded for us. It's commanded for us. It's the norm for a Christian. Not because our lives are a bed of roses, but because regardless of what happens in life, we are Christ's. And he is ours. That's the source of our joy. Joy is found in knowing him. Joy is forged in clinging to him, even when life is hard. And joy is fixed firm in the gospel. So when we look at the cross, a changed heart, worship that God accepts, and confidence in what Christ has done, rather than desperately hoping that what we have done is enough. Therein is joy, and those are the things we must set our hearts on.